That's the longest lead-in I've had in a while, just trying to get myself set up here. Um, it's Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And, you know, I, I, I've been reading and listening to um, all of the – and watching all of the kind of end-of-the-year and, and year-to-come stuff. And, you know, some of it's really interesting, and then you get to a point where it starts to get boring. And um, I'm not sure, you know, what we should um, – uh, how to deal with it. Um, so I kind of just had to go with my own instincts about what I find interesting. So politics, the arts, and uh, Leah Chase. And that's what we're dealing with tonight. And um, I'm going to kick off the show on politics, of course, because that, I don't know about anybody else, but I, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who share with me um, the, my obsession with the um, soap opera, I call it the soaps, that I watch every night, you know, primarily, I will have to admit, on, 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 on MSNBC, um, you know, I, I do also go to CNN, I just can't do Fox, I just can't do that, I'm a, I'm a former journalist, I'm still doing journalism as part of my life, even though I run a nonprofit in the arts, and I just can't listen to what is essentially um, very, it's like the state, it's the state um, controlled media in some uh, autocratic country. So I have Karen Carvin with me, who is one of the premier um, political consultants in our state. And I just can't even imagine why I've been on the air now for, I don't know, I think it's going to be three years in the spring and why I haven't had you on before. And um, I'm so glad to have you here. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for and, having uh, me. And we'll make this more of a practice going forward. Okay. The only other um, political folks that I've had on from on occasion was Jacques, and I've had um, uh, 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 the um, from uh, Baton Rouge. Who's a Jeremy Alford? Or? No. no. Uh, I, I'm not going to try to do that because I, I'm so bad with names. But one of the good guys up there, the one whose father's agency he took over. Does that tell you who I'm? No. Okay. Not um, sure. Anyway, and um, and some other folks. But, uh, I, I, you know, Karen, you've been involved in, in the municipal elections now, primarily at municipal, am I right? Yeah. I mean, we do sometimes we do statewide work, but mostly in Louisiana and primarily in Orleans and Jefferson Parish. And you've been at it now for? 25 years, I think, <laughs> something. Now, so you must have started as basically a baby, even before you were actually um, front line in the company. You, you, you've been well, I grew up in politics because your dad. My dad, Jim Carvin, was considered the guru of Louisiana politics, and so we, we had politicians in our home all the time. Uh, I remember as a kid going to breakfast at Brennan's on Sunday mornings and sitting on Hale Boggs's lap. <laughs> so <laughs> it takes you back. So I've, I, you know, I've known most of them either as a child or now as a professional, and. Uh, Tannen always tells a story. My husband, Bob Tannen, always tells the story of the, f the first time he ever went to meet um, Moon Landry at his home. And um, a little tyke that, you know, up to his knees <laughs> named Mary <laughs> Landry exactly. um, would usher him in and say, oh, Mr. Tannen, I'm so glad to see you. Why don't you come in and have a seat? My dad will be with you shortly. So uh, tell me what's going on in your life, Mr. Tannen. I mean, she was just a politician at the age of right. uh, knee-high. Well, I think for those of us who are in political families, like the Landrews and the Morials, and on my side, the um, on my side it's the um, 
uh, consulting end, not the running for office end. But right. you, when you grow up on it, it's, it becomes natural, and you feel comfortable with with people who are elected officials. They're not quite, you know, you don't look at them with maybe the same awe because you saw them as children and what have you. So. Exactly. And I actually did not grow up with um, anybody in political office or as a consultant, but my father was very politically interested. And so our dinner time was always conversation. We talked at the table about what was going on in the world. And he worked with a company called Press Wireless. Press Wireless, in its day, was the vehicle through which news came into the country over the cables by Morse code. Hmm. And he would, he was very, very fast, and he would actually type out the news from Morse code. And so he knew a lot of things that were happening before anybody else, like Sputnik. I knew about Sputnik like immediately, and so on. So that sort of set up the news orientation in my family. So, okay, you've just been through a very interesting mayor's race. Two women, who would have thought? Um, exactly, our first woman mayor in our history. It's an exciting time. And with the runoff, either way, it was going to be the first female mayor. So. And coming in, uh, again, what my husband's calling um, the, the year of the woman coming up. And um, I'm not sure the year of the woman wasn't this past year, because starting in the fall, um, or really before that, with, I mean, you know, it's kind of, a moving target where you date the whole beginning of this kind of new um, feminine trend that we're dealing with. Um, it wasn't. It was really before Harvey Weinstein just blew it up. Absolutely, totally blew it up. Absolutely. But you already had all the Fox guys, right? Who were kind of in trouble. But now it's in every industry, it, it's, and it's all um, over. and you know, and it's, I think it's interesting because it's in every glamour industry, but I think it's actually in every industry. But of course, if you are someone working in a fast food restaurant who's being sexually harassed. You don't have access to the media and that sort of thing where you can be heard. And so I think it's probably even more prevalent. But um, the people being heard are the ones that I think are in the professions that politics, show business. You know, so if, if it's, in a, if it's in, a, in a universe that has such high public profile as some of the, you know, it's the Besh restaurant chain or, um, you know, or, or a guy like Matt Lauer or um, – uh, Charlie Rose, oh my God! I mean, they are right out there in front of the universe, and 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 they are crazy enough to think it's okay. So if 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 that's the case, then it's so not surprising at all that in in less exposed environments that it would really be rampant just as much. As yeah, I think it. I think it is, and I think we're kind of at the zeitgeist of it, and I think it's a good thing, and it and, and I hope that it will trickle down into some of the areas where women uh, don't have the resources that people do have in the higher profile, in the higher profile industries to be able to um, You know, interestingly, I haven't heard a lot about the financial industry. I, you, there was an article in the New York Times about, um, in the book section, I think it was, about a book called um, the, the Glass Ceiling Club. Did mm-hmm. you hear about that? No, I'm not familiar with that. Or, or I might have the, the name not quite right, but it was about a group of women in the financial industry who would meet on occasion to kind of compare notes, and one of the things they would do would be to warn women about guys who in in their universes were menacing, who would have affairs and then throw the women off and fire them from the companies, and I mean, all kinds of really... But right now, I haven't heard a lot about the financial industry as one of them. You haven't heard much about... There's been a couple of university situations mm-hmm. that have popped up, but 
I think tell me this wasn't happening on Wall Street. Yeah, of course. I Those think, guys are super macho. Right. I think whenever you have male-dominated industries and all the powers there, and that's probably in most industries, really, um, you know, maybe not in the, t- the teaching profession or something like that where you have a lot of women, but, you know, and certainly on Wall Street. I'm sure it's it's everywhere. I'm waiting for the story to come out of a, of a you know, people who did not sexually harass, um, they seem to be in the minority. But I think it's good that it's out there and things are being done and people are being heard and they feel they, they can be heard and not be so afraid of the reciprocity that that used to come from, you know, reporting sexual harassment. So, and then uh, I'm, I'm actually more interested even in, not that, that the sexual harassment isn't the most egregious level of all this, but there's also still... Um, a bias against women in the workplace in general that we have to deal with. And so when I did some political consulting way back in in the, um, you know, I guess it was around between about 78 and about 84 was the time frame, I didn't find it easy to be a political consultant as a woman. You know, it's a boys club. There's no question about it. And um, and sometimes that's to your advantage, you know. I'm, I'm often the only woman in the room in a, in a political consulting um, capacity. And um, of course, I think having grown up with it, I've kind of learned, you know, how how to how to be a part of that group and and try to be heard. But it's still challenging, even even now sometimes. And um, you know, to it, it takes a lot of years of and a lot of wins and that sort of thing to gain respect. And um, but I think it's getting better. And I think that I hope that women will mentor other women too. I try to do that when I can. Really mentor anybody, but particularly young women who want to get in the business because it is really an exciting and fun and uh, there's just nothing like it. I mean, it's just, you know, um, if you're addicted to adrenaline, this is the profession for you. I was just going to say (laughs) adrenaline and stress. I mean, let's talk about the stress level that comes with um, being working in the boys field in, in their um, there was a, a, another amazing story that I read about um, the closing of a factory in Indi- Indianapolis, and uh, uh, it, it was written from the perspective of one of the women who was working in this factory, and she had worked her way up to kind of one of the jobs that was normally really reserved for men. So she got off the assembly line, and she was working in um, kind of near the furnace, mm-hmm. I want to say. And um, the guys harassed her. Yeah, they 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 literally harassed her. I mean, the sad outcome of that story was they moved that factory to Mexico, and the people who were working there actually had to change their replacements in Mexico. Wow, it was really just horrifying. And and she was one, and she had to train a guy to do her job in a in an area that um, was, you know. not meant for women to begin with, and there she was being ushered out of her job by. But I think things have improved dramatically, and I think a lot of it is due to the fact that we've had so many women run for office and be elected. And that's been going on for quite a long time. So yeah. I've had many female clients, um, you know, who've run, um, you know, both in Orleans, I mean, uh, in civil district court here. I recently worked for Rachel Johnson. I've worked for Tiffany Chase, Nikisha Urban Knott. We've got a lot of women on the bench now, and I think that's really good, and I think that's good for the judiciary. And then on the city council, we've had a lot of women in Orleans. I've worked for um, Cynthia Lee Shang in um, Jefferson Parish. And so we have a lot of women, you know, elected officials, much more than we ever did. And so as a female political consultant, it's nice 
you know, to have that. But honestly, uh, to me, you're always looking for the best candidate. So, you know. but let's talk about how do you see this coming year shaping up with new women in office, presumably a lot more running for office, um, challenging candidates who um, maybe have been sort of falling in with the president in ways that are not comfortable for a lot of people on the other side that I think maybe opted out of. I, I've really never heard the statistics on how many of the Bernie supporters actually came out and voted for Hillary because there was there was a, a bit of a trend that some of those that were so strongly behind Bernie just couldn't. Right make that switch. Right. And I think we saw that, you know, to some extent in the in the outcome of the election that 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 people were just not as energized and I think some of it was just because of Hillary Clinton herself. Um but I do think that we are in an era where women are making a huge difference and African American women. We just saw that in the Doug Jones race versus Roy Moore in Alabama. They helped to make the difference to elect a Democrat in Alabama statewide. Um, so women and suburban women and African-American women are playing a huge role in who gets elected to office. And I think that's a good thing, and I think it's going to continue to get become even more so. I think some of it's a reaction to Trump because people have gotten really energized, and they realize that every vote actually does matter. There was a race recently where – Virginia. Right, one vote in the, the legislature. What was the outcome of that finally? Did they flip the coin or what? I, I, don't, I don't know what happened yeah, That's there. so funny. I, I think actually it's not settled. I don't, I don't think it's done. I, I don't know. I didn't haven't followed up, but I remember it was one vote. So yeah. anytime somebody says their vote doesn't count, yeah. we can certainly point to that. But there are even other races where, you know, the margins are very slim. I've been in races here in Orleans Parish where 100 votes were the difference between the winner and the loser. So we see this. This is going to be a pattern nationally. There are going to be a lot of women uh, running for office. How about in Louisiana? I think so. I mean, I, we, we've just elected our first woman mayor. Um, you know, we, as I said, we've got elections coming up on March 24th. There's two judicial uh, races on the ballot. Today, uh, two women qualified for the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal, Dale Atkins and Robin Pittman. Dale's clerk of court here, and Robin Pittman's a criminal court judge. Uh, we have another race for uh, Orleans Parish Civil District Court uh, for the seat that Tiffany Chase um, is vacating because she's going up to the Fourth Circuit. And uh, Ellen Hazor, who's a clerk of First City Court, qualified for that today. I think uh, uh, Richard Purple, who got a guy qualified too. But but anyway, you know, just just today's only the first day of qualifying. It ends on Friday, so we've got you know those races on the ballot, and um, got a big race in Jefferson Parish for sheriff. There are no women qualifying there. <laughs> you don't usually see women in law enforcement. I think that's kind of interesting. I, I was about to say, you know, what about prosecutors? Yeah. Yeah, you don't usually – now, um, Cynthia Lee Shang, Harry Lee's daughter, successfully got elected to the uh, Jefferson Parish Council as a district council person and now as council at large. And a lot of people, I think, would like to have seen her run for sheriff, but I don't think she's interested in that. Mm-hmm. So how will uh, – how do you see having the women – we have some very strong women. I had um, – I had Cindy, I had uh, Kristen, and I had um, uh, um, Helena mm-hmm. all on my show um, over the holidays uh, talking about, you know, this new council that we have with a lot of very strong women on it. And, and a very, you know, they're all strong women. Right. Latoya is strong. Uh, they get, these gals are, are, none of them are, they're all, they're very seriously committed to their community. 
that's part of it, and then they are um, ready for the fight, ready to do what they have to I do. I agree. They're all dynamic. I think this is going to be a tr- – What will the effect of it be on the city council? I- I think it's going to be a terrific new council. I really do. I'm very optimistic about this council. And I think LaToya as mayor and having served on the council, she understands the relationship between the legislative and executive. Mm-hmm. And she's seen it from the council side. So I think I think she will go a long way to having a much stronger relationship between the mayor's office and the council members. Um, and I think she wants that, and I think she knows how to do it. And I think I think it's going to be very exciting to watch. I really do. How will this translate to the state politics? And what is the chance that we can um, see Louisiana become a, at least a purple state as opposed to a red state? Well, that's going to be tough, no question about it. But I think, you know, the recent poll numbers that John Bell Edwards has, 65% approval, are, are terrific for him, speak really well. I, I know he will be challenged, and they will try to get the governor's ship back. But I'm not – I'm optimistic that he can hold on to it. Again, it's all going to depend in every campaign. It depends who the candidates are and what their strengths and weaknesses are. But, I mean, I think this far into his term, to have that level of approval as a Democrat is uh, – is very good. I thank God. I uh, thank goodness for the fact that uh, he has done well, um, because that that really does kind of begin to seek some kind of balance. But what about the legislative seats? Yeah, that we could use a little more work in the legislature with women having a bigger role there. And, and, is, do you and see we've lost Helena now there. Know, and she was yeah. such a you know she driving force. Um, Julie Stokes has been a very active, um, and you know she's got some health issues, but hopefully she's doing well. But no. I think we'd like to see a lot more women running for the legislature. There's a seat on the ballot right now. I didn't mention uh, District, I think, 93, Helena's seat. And uh, yeah. I think today two men qualified for that seat. So we'll uh, see. We'll have to wait till Friday at 5 o'clock to see right. uh, what happens there. Um, but is there any kind of a cue shaping up for uh, women um, to run, either Republican or Democrat in the state? Because I would think even female Republicans – it's by no means is this a uh, statistically accurate statement to make, but maybe some of them are a little bit more empathetic than some of the guys have been. I, I think you will see more women running in Louisiana and elsewhere at the legislative lo- level and at the local, other local levels, because I think women are just getting more and more engaged and they're realizing that they really can make a difference and they see they're making a difference with their votes and I think they will you will see more and more women continue to run. Is there any concerted effort to get them out there? I mean I I, I don't understand the state democratic um, party. I have to be forthright in saying I just don't really understand. I don't I, I've been out of politics for a little too long in any kind of direct way. So I just don't understand who's responsible for what, who's doing what. what well, I mean is Karen Carter Peterson has been a strong woman leader in yeah. in the legislature yeah. and in the party. Um, and I think other organizations outside of the party organizations, like organizations like IWO, um, are a tremendous resource uh, for women to learn about politics, getting into politics, getting engaged um, with other people who are interested in politics and interested in playing a role. Um, so it's not always necessarily, I think, going to come from the party down. But I, 
I see things growing more from the bottom up than from the top down. Okay, tell me more about that because, and, and, and we don't have to talk about women for this whole time. I really am looking for you to kind of tell me, you know, where where is the flexibility? Where is the movement? Where is the possible trend that will uh, kind of, again, uh, uh, I, I'm assuming with, with what's going to happen in the 2018 elections that, do you feel confident, as some people are saying, that it, it's going to really be a, a kind of wide-open situation and there is the opportunity for the Democrats, for example, to take black, back um, the, the House of Representatives and, and maybe the Senate? Um, but what, what are the dynamics? And, and, and in this state, where is the concerted effort for things to be right. balanced? I just want to seek balance. You know, I'm not... Saying that it has to be all of a sudden all Democrat, that's not going to happen for a long time. But the demographics are certainly pointing in the right direction. On right. That. Well, I do. I do think there's there's a good chance. I don't know, there's a there's a reasonable chance of Democrats taking back the House in 2018. I mean, let's see what happens. What Trump does tomorrow. I mean, you know, every day is a, is another um, nightmare. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, what he did yesterday with you know saying my my button's bigger than your button. I mean. Yeah. In a way, thank goodness for those kind of comments because that just reveals him constantly. So that one of these days, some of the there's got to be some shedding of support for him, even amongst his base, when they recognize what a ch- yeah. What, well, how it's very dangerous. Obviously, it's a very dangerous game he's playing. But I think you know the fact that he is in office has energized Democrats and Democratic Party and even Republicans that used to be the sort of the old time, what I used to call the Rockefeller Republicans, who were. Right fiscally conservative but socially liberal or whatever. Right. There's been very – there's no room for them in that party anymore. Um, so some of them are, are going to cross over and vote Democratic even if they don't change their registration. You I think so. Think. I think so. Mm-hmm. But I think in terms of the bottom-up, top-down approach, we yeah, just saw that in that. this recent mayor's election where you had um, LaToya who was came out of a grassroots organization, the Broadmoor organization in neighborhoods, and then you had um, – Desiree Charbonnet, who was part of much more part of the political establishment, really she had in the beginning all the money and all the political support. Latoya had neither of those two things, and she was able to really connect on an emotional level, I think, with millennials and young people, and you know Latoya. Latoya, and yeah. if you look at the election results from the mayor's election, she won across the board in every councilmanic district, not just in District B, which was her base. And I think a lot of that was based on the kind of um, campaign she ran, which was a very grassroots campaign approach and used a lot of social media to reach out to those millennials and, as LaToya likes to always say, to meet people where they are. And I think she successfully did that really well. And I think we saw that people saw, actually, this this can work. You don't just because you don't have all the money and all the political support, you can still you can still win. I if, think the the two critical factors. I was actually fascinated. Uh, I I, I uh, was interested in making sure that the arts community was aware of her potential, but um, they already were. Uh, mm-hmm. It was really interesting to see. And uh, my feeling was that her messaging and her history in Broadmoor were the two key things, her, and also the, the awareness of her experience as a council person. And, and, and on, unfortunately, Desiree Charbonnet, who I think is probably a really good person mm-hmm. uh, when you come right down to it, but I think she was so unsure of herself, really, and and that came across mm-hmm. in the campaign that you just didn't hear a lot of message from her. It seems like she was holding back and afraid to 
to step out and say what she stood for. And well, Latoya certainly ne never was shy about getting her message out, and some people, you know, some people criticized her for that, said she was too edgy or whatever, but she was really passionate about her message, and I think that did come through ultimately. And, um, you know, uh, I mean, Tip O'Neill's adage holds true today, all politics is local, and there's nothing more effective than a politician touching an actual voter, shaking hands, listening to their concerns, um, getting feedback. It, it, it energizes both people. It energizes the candidate, and then the voter comes away thinking, actually, I have a different perception of this person. I've talked to them. I've met with them, and that sort of thing. I'm going to uh, close. We're about out of time with my core question, and that is, um, what, what, it, what, will it, what will it take to penetrate the mindsets of the base as they are as we all are referring to it right now, Trump's base that still believes in him despite the fact that everything he has done politically as president has been in favor of the oligarchy, quite frankly, his crowd and not his his voters, his base that he throws out, you know, rhetoric at, but it, it, there's, no, there's no walk in the walk, it's all talking the talk. What what do we have to do well, to help folks comprehend and understand? I can tell you from a personal and professional perspective, I have family members who voted for Trump. So we had the Thanksgiving Christmas table dilemmas um, where, you know, we weren't, couldn't really talk politics. I think we could all agree that sexual harassment was bad, but that was about it. But I found that, and I think professionally too, the party and, and the Democratic Party and, and just us as individuals, I think we have to make them also feel heard because they do have some legitimate gripes. And they do feel that they were not heard by the Democratic Party and they did not deliver for them. And I think if we can get them to understand and hear that we hear them, but that Trump is not the answer or people like Trump are not the answer, that there are other ways to... I just want to know how that's going to happen and when mm -hmm. that's going to happen. Because Leadership. You know, look, we need, we need leaders and we need, we need good candidates that can convey that. Do you feel that we have the leadership at the national level that's, that's reaching out? I wish we had a deeper bench than we do, I'll say that. On that note, <laughs> we'll punt to the next time. Thank I'll have you, you back in about a month or so. <laughs> okay. And we'll, uh, we'll revisit the subject and, and see how things start shaping up. Karen Carvin, political consultant. Um, folks out there, and ladies in particular, if you want to take a shot at it, give her a call. She can give you some great advice about, you know, whether you should jump in and, and how and, and – um, get into public office and, and, and start um, stirring things up. Thanks, Jane. I enjoyed it. Thank, Thank you. you. I enjoyed it very much, too. Now, I am going to welcome in um, a whole studio full of people who are involved in a combination of art and carnival um, is, a, is my little shorthand way of describing it because it's kind of complicated. There's more than one level to... Um, to what we're dealing with. Yeah, we got three chairs. One, two, three. Come on in. Unless you get, you come this way. Okay. What, were you hearing me before? Okay. All right, we were shaking the mic, a little shaking things up here. All right, so we're going to shake things up here a little bit because we got folks in the in the studio who um, get out there on the streets and shakes things up. 
<laughs> and some people who document it, and some people who give uh, give us a place where it can be shown. Now, I will ask you all to put on your headphones so that uh, we're all sort of, um, you know, aware of the fact that we're on the air and uh, that you can uh, make sure to modulate your uh, your voice so that folks can hear you out there. First of all, let's go around the table and do some introductions so that people know who's in the room. Jessica Knox, I'm co-owner of Backatown Coffee Parlor with my husband, Alonzo Knox. Chief Shaka Zulu, um, uh, co-producer of uh, Voices of Congo Square stage production. Ashley Lorraine, photographer. Okay, so you have the artist, you have the culture bearer, and you have the businesswoman who uh, gives uh, a home to um, culture in the city. Let me talk. start with you, Jessica, because, again, we've got a, a multi-layered uh, situation here. We have what you're trying to do with your sh- shop and making mm-hmm. it available for the arts. We have the traditional, um, you know, uh, um, uh, Mardi Gras Indian um, culture bearer, and um, and then a young uh, rising artist who is happens to be a photographer. And um, as many artists today is is involved in kind of a, a more authentic message. It's not just about abstract art or media. It's it's really about mm-hmm. uh, the su- the subject matter of the people in our city. So, Jessica. Tell us about your shop and um, about what you're trying to do. Okay, thank you. And, um, you know, before we get started, let's make sure because we, I don't want to run out of time and not get in the event that's coming up. Okay. Um, back at town, what we are, um, although it's a coffee shop, we feel like it is a space to bring people from all walks of life together. And part of that is bringing artists and musicians, um, people who do sculpture, and all that together so we can all network and learn from each other and create. We want it to be a gathering house um, that showcases others and their talents. Um, and so, and we just wanted that vibe and that atmosphere to be there at Back of Town. So we have a space. Um, we know a lot of people who are out trying to showcase what they do. And so we just want to showcase them as well. We want to be able to help them. Location. Explain to people exactly where you are. Back of Town is at 301 Basin Street. Um, um, it's, at, it's the first floor of Bienville Basin Apartments, which was formerly Iberville, which was also formerly Storyville. So it's a lot of history there. And so when you think of that, we feel like we possess that aura of that history to bring all this culture and talent together. That would be the space to do it. And you have coming up an event that's going to showcase both the Mardi Gras traditions of the city as well as the photography of a young artist. Yes, we have Art Fusion at Bacatown. NOLA, and um, we're going to showcase, it's just starting January 5th from 5 to 7 p.m., we'll be showcasing the art of um, Ashley Lorraine, her photography. She has some beautiful pictures about the culture of New Orleans called Pieces of New Orleans. Well, Ashley, let's start with you, and then we'll move on to our Mardi Gras royalty. Yes. Tell me about your work. So um, the name of um, the exhibit that I'm doing at Back of Town is called A Piece of New Orleans. Um, as we all know, New Orleans has so much culture from the food to the people. So um, I'm always out, always capturing the culture. So um, th- this is the images that people will see on Friday is a collection from um, Second Lines to Mardi Gras Indians to um, Mardi Gras Day, of course. 
Um, so it's different pieces of New Orleans that we all experience at some point in time uh, th throughout the year. You know, um, we're also basically obsessed with New Orleans, yes. right? And I, I'm from New York originally, and, you know, New Yorkers are a little bit obsessed with New York, but not like New Orleanians <laughs> are obsessed with New Orleans at all, you know. So for you to take on that mission mm -hmm. in the face of so many other people, artists who are out there, you know, telling the New Orleans story, mm -hmm. that to me, it takes a lot of guts. Yes, it does take a whole lot of guts. But I am a New Orleans native. I've gr I grew up here. I went to school here, elementary, middle, <laughs> high school, college. So I've been here my whole entire life. So what other person should um, document the culture than a native of New Orleans? I think it's important that native um, New Orleanians photographers document our culture so that we can continue to tell the story of New Orleans and not have someone to say, well, this is what it is. And, so know. how would you distinguish, do you think, at its core, how you speak of and convey through your photography the city as compared with someone from the outside? Um, I think for for me, I'm going... I. I I should have said from away. From away, yeah. <laughs> and I, 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 I don't want to offend anyone or anything like that, but I don't know. Maybe some people stand from the outside. As for me, I'm going in, in into it. I want to, if I'm at a second line, I want to go, I want to be in the middle, dancing with the people with my camera. You know what I'm saying? I'm walking mm -hmm. through the crowds. I want to mm -hmm. get the reactions of people and what's happening in that moment because that's my whole thing. I love to um, do the, I, I want to see the relationship between people and the culture. So if I'm at a second line, people and how they're um, reacting to the second line. Most mm -hmm. people are dancing, drinking, having fun, you know. It's like an escape for a whole lot of people in New Orleans, these different types. It's more than an escape, isn't yeah. it? That, that, that's your cue. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, you know, some people regard Carnival as, um, and, and I have to say, I'm, I'm included in this because as a former New Yorker, as a reformed Yankee, um, <laughs> There's nothing to me more pleasurable than January 6th, 12th night, as the kickoff to a season of celebration, mm -hmm. of, quote, mirth, and of culture. When in New York, January, right after the first, is torture. It is, <laughs> it is about days like we're having right now mm -hmm. for the next three months, and nothing but work, 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 no fun, you know, people escape and get out. Those who can uh, have the freedom to go to Florida or wherever they go. But it, it's, it's basically torture, whereas here it's the golden time. Speaking of golden. Um, I think as many people um, move from New York to New Orleans. Chief Shaka Zula is talking Zulu. I just want to remind everybody who's there. And you're a co-owner of the Golden Feather Mardi Gras Indian Gallery. Yes, Go. yes. And, um, and once again, as, 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 as many people 
as many New Yorkers that moved to New Orleans, I think they're starting to bring the weather with them because now January 6th <laughs> oh, is actually cold in New Orleans. Excuse me. You didn't hear the theme song of my show, did you? Did you not hear the theme song of my show? So what you were just describing. My theme song is It Ain't My Fault. Let's get this straight. So as you describe what New York is going through, we feel it. By the way, I've been here since 1973. Oh, Does that count? 1973. Excuse me. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, because normally it's warm uh, during this, this period. 60s. The average yeah, temperature yeah, during yeah, the so, day is 60. So like I said, a lot of New Yorkers are here now. So, so <laughs> welcome to the new I guess what we have in common is we are the new, <laughs> the New York and New Orleans. But uh, yeah, it's um, it's a different feel here, you know. Of just sitting here, I'm, uh, I'm actually missing sewing, so I, I still feel the adrenaline of um, what it is that I'm supposed to be doing, just getting ready for that carnival season. Adrenaline, so, what an interesting word yes, to apply to yes. sewing. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. I want I want to explore that. Tell me about mm-hmm. that because when I think about the 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 commitment it takes to sew year long. You start making your new suit right after the right Mardi Gras, after. right? Right, exactly. I, I, yeah. What that, that that there has to be some, as you say, some kind of real thrill to doing that that can keep you going night after night. How many how many hours a week do you sew? I try to at least um, for so many months about seven eight hours a day, and then as you get closer to um, Mardi Gras time, then those hours get longer and longer. But, you know, the way we sew, we kind of like take the first month to just plan out everything. You know, you have to come up with your theme. And a lot of people don't realize um, we come up with our own theme as well as our own color. Mm-hmm. So you kind of like designing the suit the first, you know, few weeks into the sewing or the month. Mm-hmm. And uh, for us, you know, which is downtown, we kind of make models of it to make sure everything is going to fit, and then eventually we start actually sewing. Hmm. But what I loved about it was um, how it brought um, families closer, um, how it brought community people uh, in, because uh, one thing I realized, if you say that you made a Mardi Gras Indian suit uh, by yourself in one year, two things. I was just saying that mm-hmm. either the suit doesn't look very good or you're not telling the truth. Because it's a it's an extreme it's a amount of work. Yeah, process. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and 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 I just enjoy, um, you know, the time that you spend with the family, and the people that you care about that that puts in time to help you complete the mission. So 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 really exactly. So it's it's not just you lonely in your kitchen table. It is you with your kids, with a wife, with friends, cousins. in-laws. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of people think you're just sitting there. Um, just sewing, you know. For some people, that's the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for many people, you know, it's a lot of help that goes along into building these masterpieces. Group process, including with your vendors. When you pick your beads and your sequins and your mm-hmm. feathers and all of the other ingredients, you're working with um, the people on the other side of the uh, counter, too. Yeah, and, and that also um, struck the conversation of us actually uh, creating Golden Feather mm-hmm. because I realized that amount of um, economics that goes into um, building a suit on a yearly basis. Mm-hmm. Even though you're not spending all the money at one time, but throughout the year you, you look up and look at receipts and you didn't spend five, $6,000 on Whoa. putting together a suit. So, so we basically started going into um, the business of uh, having some of the products to be able to sell to the Indians for them to complete their suits on a yearly basis. So tell me about that. 
Um, we right now we uh, we a gallery, you know, and we um, sell the uh, the, the uh, ostrich plume feathers. Um, we um, our first initial boost was from the Jazz and Heritage um, Foundation mm-hmm. that um, came together with the Norman Dixon Fund to um, where they um, buy a lot of feathers to give out to the to the to the tribes. So that was. Um, you know, pretty much the um, the start of actually your, your being jump. sustainable. Your jump yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And we have a, a organization, the CDFIs like Nucor, who um, actually mm-hmm. assisted us, you know, financially in terms of loans to be able to um, buy the product. And of course, my wife and I are just grinding and putting money together ourselves to pretty much um, go into the business. So. So for, for, for many years, it's, it's, you know, this street culture has been very, very prominent. But we, you know, we also understood that at some point um, we have to make a business out of it in order for it to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. Very smart thinking. Mm-hmm. And um, let me go to the, um, the uh, showcase of artists' works, the Art Fusion, mm-hmm. which is going to be a monthly showcase of artists' works beginning in January at the Back of Town Coffee Parlor. And let me understand how this relates to the Voices of Congo and, and what you do with that. Um, Voices of Congo Square, uh, um, I come from a, a history of uh, performing arts. Um, my wife and I, we, for, since 1994, um, we had a performing arts company called Zulu Connection that traveled the world um, doing African carnival traditions. So I realized that, you know, coming from that culture, and starting the Mardi Gras Indian tradition and masking in that culture, that I came from a masking culture anyway. And so I wanted to be able to tell that story of New Orleans. And we chose Congo Square because that's where everything came together that started pretty much uh, black American music and culture. So we just took everything chronologically from the beginning of Congo Square or before we got to Congo Square all the way to the point of uh, the Caribbean, uh, be it being Haiti, um, which... The Haitian Revolution had a lot to do with the Louisiana Purchase. Double the population mm-hmm. exactly. of the city yeah, of New Orleans. Yeah. So that tells you how many yeah. people. So a lot of Haitian people missed that. Right. A lot of people right. missed that, you know. Yeah. So we wanted to be able to tell that story. So it's a 26-member cast. It's a huge cast. It's all live music. It's about 80 costumes. Wow. And, and it's, it's multimedia. So you you got dancing. You have drumming. We have a live brass band. And we also um, have uh, imagery uh, that's projected in a background, in a backdrop as people are on the stage. So we basically telling that 300-year history of New Orleans, of black carnival traditions of New Orleans through music, song, and dance. And I'm going to have to have you back and, 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 and t- uh, uh, delve a little bit uh, more into that because we have so much going on in this group that um, I won't have time for it. But um, So we're going to visit again. And I just want – and so you're going to get a little taste – of that um, at Back of Town on Friday, um, January 5th, 5 to 7. Shock is going to come and talk a little bit more about Voices of Congo, but he's also going to do some drumming and there'll be some chanting. So you'll get a little taste of that stage production, which is going to be at the Orpheum Theater, I think, April 20th. April 420, yeah, Yeah. Orpheum Theater. And, and, And it connects so well with what Ashley is doing because she's also talking about the cultural traditions um, that that are present here. And I want to ask you also um, about how the photogra- the work that you have done 
with Shaka and with others in your pieces has affected who you are? Um, how has the work of my the how photography? How has the exposure to the people that you've been photographing and their worlds mm-hmm. affected you as a person? Um, I don't know if it so much has affected me. I think it caused when I'm when I'm shooting like different things as far as like um, the Indians or second lines or things of that nature. It causes me to be in the moment and to make sure that I am in that present moment of what's and in tune to what's happening at that moment right now. Like as far as if there's chanting going on or something like that, just making sure that I'm there to capture the essence of that moment. Because if my mind is somewhere else, I can totally miss what's what's happening. Uh, That relates to um, uh, the next uh, segment of my show is going to be Leah Chase, Mm -hmm. who I interviewed today. And I've interviewed her in the past, and I always forget how incredible she is. And one of the things that she talked about was all of the experiences that she has had in life and how they um, uh, educated and informed and shaped who she she is. But it was also a lot about, again, the same thing you're talking about of being really in engaging yes. in the things that she was exposed mm-hmm. to, music world through her husband, the civil rights movement, because mm-hmm. Tokyo Chase, of course, was the headquarters for a lot of the planning and the mm-hmm. civil rights movement, and then cuisine, the culinary influences that Definitely. she experienced. And what was fascinating is that it will be part of the interview that's coming up in a minute. Um, uh, less than a minute, I think, as I'm being told by my <laughs> engineer, um, the experience of, of working in the French Quarter as a young woman and mm-hmm. saying, you know, we, we should have that in our community, in, in her community. Mm-hmm. And that was a part of the forming, the shaping of, of, of um, Dookie Chase Restaurant. So you are the portal. Yes. Yes. <laughs> We're bringing it all together. The, the Back of Town <laughs> Coffee Parlor. Yes. Friday night. Friday night. You can go to backoftownola.com or Back of Town Nola on Facebook, and you'll see about Voices of Congo as well as the Art Fusion exhibit. You are the media, <laughs> the photographer, Ashley Lorraine, and I'm on Instagram at she shoots underscore. And you are the the roots. Yep, just telling that story of uh, our history uh, through music, song, and dance. New Orleans Voices of Congo Square, Orpheum Theater, April 20th, 2018, Tricentennial International Week. Can people purchase tickets yet? You can go online, uh, Ticketmaster, as well as um, the Orpheum Theater site, and tickets are available, so get them quick because they're going to sell pretty fast. (laughs) And come to the event Friday to meet Shaka and Ashley. They are wonderful. (laughs) And and back of town coffee is... Good coffee. It's the bomb, too, so... Pretty good. (laughs) Um, I've enjoyed uh, being with you all, and um, I look forward to more from all three of you in the, your different re, um, parts of life. And um, I definitely want to, um, maybe sometime uh, really before Mardi Gras again, let's uh, delve a little bit further into uh, some of that history uh, gotcha. uh, from coming out of Congo Square. I've, I've read about it and studied it 
I wasn't here back then, so <laughs> can't say I have first-hand experience. Um, all right, so uh, what's up next, and just hang on for a second, folks. What's up next is an interview that I recorded with um, Leah today over at Dookie Chase as she was preparing my chicken livers, Jean Nathan, mm. that I concocted Good. with her, which is, and she gives a recipe on uh, in the interview, and it's basically chicken livers with onion and oysters mm. and butter of course, and other things uh, good. And um, she talks, uh, we, we, the beginning of it is a little bit about recipes, and then we hit on the civil rights movement and her art collecting. So we're going to roll into that, and um, that'll be part one of that, and the part two of it will be next week because I, I didn't have enough time for everything in one show. All right. Thank you very much, and here comes Leah. Thank you. So Leah is celebrating her... 95th birthday. 95. And basically one-third, almost, of the tricentennial of the city of New Orleans. That means you're real old. Well, it means that you've seen a lot of the history of this city. So I'm very curious about how you have negotiated these years. The city has changed so much in those years. It has. Tell me what it was like. In, in your earliest years and, and how you feel about how it's changed. It's changed. The city has changed so much. But, you know, until from my birth, I was born in New Orleans. Then I was brought up for 12 years across the lake in Madisonville. Then I came here to go to high school when I was 12 years old. I went to St. Mary's Academy. Well, I saw a whole lot of things. We had to cross because the school St. Mary's was on Orleans and Royal at that time. So we had to cross Bourbon Street to get to school. But, you know, we didn't even look at Bourbon Street. We just went on to school and went on. But I grew up to work in the French quarters. And there I saw a lot of things going on, a lot of people playing at different clubs and paddle brines and all this kind of thing. And, but now I see so much, so many different things going on, you know. How would you, how would you compare what's going on now with what was going on then? Well, you know, for me, I liked what, I like progress. I like to move up. But if you can keep some of the culture or some of the people that you had behind you would be so good, you know. I came up in the French quarters working at the coffee pot, serving people like Ricky Alvarez and all those kind of people. I even served Doris Duke in that little restaurant. But we were proud of what we did. And Paddle Brian was just a couple of doors away. Uh, we kind of enjoyed that if we had the stomachache or pretended we had the stomachache. Mr. Barber said, go tell Mr. Pat give you a little cream to melt. But half the time we would get the cream to mint, we didn't even need it. <laughs> of course. We didn't even need it. But that kind of camaraderie, that kind of thing, and you learn about different things. Oh, then I look at this Tennessee Williams thing, and Tennessee Williams' big thing was lemon icebox pie. Well, you know who made those lemon icebox pie? Miss Savar. And that's where he would get them at the coffee pot. So all those people came to the coffee pot to get their breakfast. Um, Newt Helner, which is an old painter back in those days, 
and his wife and his daughter would come every day. Henry Hobbs, which, who was another great painter in the quarters, and he did miniature drawings. But I fed them every day. And, but the quarters now, it's still the French quarters, but they don't have that character that we had and that appreciation for one another that we had. But I guess with progress, you lose some of the old things. But I like to hang on some of the cultural things that we, even in our community here, Jean, we had good food, we appreciated good food, we knew how to sit down properly, dress properly to eat it, and but that's all gone. They come dressed any kind of way. We we didn't do that. We didn't do that. You knew you were going to. You dressed nice. Your mom would tell you, "Don't go out the house if you didn't look good." They'd be putting a little uh, cream on you, making you look good to go out. That's all gone. But that's the things I like to keep. I think one thing that we've kept is the love of cuisine in yes, New Orleans. And you have been very much a part of keeping that uh, tradition alive. And um, I, I, I have to pause for just a second on on the, uh, the lemon icebox ice pie. Because <laughs> you know what? I just harvested a bunch of Meyer lemons off the tree in my yard. Oh my goodness. And I have like a bag full and I don't know what to do with them because I'm oh not goodness, a chef. Oh my so much with Meyer lemons. My goodness, if you cook fish, you take that Meyer lemon and put it in a little sugar and put it around that fish. It's so wonderful. You can do so many things. That is one of the best lemons going. Oh, I know. Uh, and so I'm, I've been trying to figure out how to how to use them. So that's something I didn't think about is doing a, Yeah, you put lemon on fish, but, but mix the lemon with the sugar. Chicken. And, and But chicken. you see, yeah. if you're going to do the icebox pie, you just squeeze the lemon, put it in the condensed milk with some eggs, egg yolks, and beat that up. There you go. Put and it that's, in the the, that's, the, that's the heart of it. That's the heart of it. Thank you for that. I'm going to actually try to do that, even and though I'm not much of a chef. I'll have to go buy a crust because I can't make crust. <laughs> well, nobody, nobody takes the time making crust today. You can buy a crust. You can buy a crust in all sizes today. You yeah. can buy the little ones. You can buy the big ones. Right. To make a big one, you need one can of condensed milk, three egg yolks, and the juice of three lemons. I got it. You got it. Thank now you, you mix the eggs and the, the milk together first. You mix it. Then when you put your lemon juice in, you don't beat it. You just fold it in. Put it in your fridge and it gets cold. Put it in your crust. You take the white, the whites of the egg, beat them up, make a meringue, stick it in the oven. Now you see, you Simple. are you are sharing with me what is at the heart of your business for. How many of those 95 years? <laughs> many. Many of those 95 years. Now let's talk about the restaurant. This was a very major undertaking when you first did this. And you had to have guts. Well, I knew what I liked. I worked at French Quarters, and I knew in the black community we did not have what I saw in the French Quarters, but I always wanted what I saw over there. I wanted for my people just what I was doing for other people. I wanted them to sit down to a nice table with a tablecloth and napkin and be served properly. 
and I'm a stickler for nice glasses. I'm a fanatic for glasses. Give me a good glass and I think I'm in heaven. <laughs> because when you come up like me drinking out of jelly glasses and all that, but when company came, your aunt came, your mother took, get a good glass. The good glass might have been one that came out of oatmeal, but it was a nice glass. You know, mm -hmm. it, and now it's called depression glass. And that's a big thing. It's, it's so funny that you said that. I'm finding so much um, traction with what you're saying because I bought a whole set of glasses once that were all multicolored and very fine and really interesting. And I thought, wow, I really have something. I went to one person's house, Beth, Beth Gallant. And she had the same glasses. I said, wow, I've never seen anybody else with those glasses. I said, Jean, they were given away at the gas station during the Depression. The depression days. Yeah. That was Depression glass. But for us, that was a good glass. It you is. Know? I you serve out of it today. You know, buy the oatmeal and you you would want a glass to get in the oatmeal. So sometimes you would have a glass, drinking glass. Sometimes you'd have a little glass dish all kinds of little glass things in the oatmeal. So, <laughs> and now it's a big thing, but that was our special glasses. So again, coming back to doing fine dining for your people. Yes. And as it turns out today, of course, everybody wants some of that. And so we all come here we come here for the gumbo, and we come here for the fried chicken, and we come here for the potato, you know, um, casseroles, casseroles. and uh, we come here for our specialties that we develop with you, That's like right. my chicken liquor, liver's oh, yeah. Gene Nathan. My Gene Nathan's chicken <laughs> liver, Gene Nathan. And all that is is saute your chicken livers with onions and drop some oysters in it. It is so it is fabulous. It is fabulous. So we do chicken liver with Gene Nathan. And, you know, people leave you a little something. That's why I like to meet people. No matter who comes along, they leave you something uh -huh. to go on. Right. Uh, we do something called Oysters Norman. Now, I used to fix those oysters for Miss Norman, something like a Rockefeller. But I wouldn't put the old, I would chop the oysters and make, make like minced oysters. Mm -hmm, then put mm -hmm. them on the shell and put some spinach and shrimp and a little bacon oh, on the top yum. of it. But you see, the oyster was like a little light dressing underneath that. But that's the way she liked them. Wow. So we call it Oysters Norman. <laughs> <laughs> Who else? Any other special uh, dishes oh, that you did for? people like special things, you know. Yeah. Uh, never forget Sarah Vaughan and her crab which she called crab cakes. We called stuffed crabs, and she loved them. We used to make them special for her. She liked those crab cakes so much. And we would, she called them crab cakes, but we just called them stuffed crab. We'd put them back in the shell, put a little crab meat and butter on the top, put it under the grill. Mm. So they'll leave you a little something, everybody who likes things, like what they like, and then we go on with it. All right, everybody, that was the culinary segment of the interview with Leah. We're going to talk more about the civil rights movement and her involvement in the arts and a little bit more culinary, too, because she's got so many recipes. This is Jean Nathan. Happy New Year, everybody. Talk to you next week.